Superlatives abound. When a person tries to describe old-growth redwoods, immense, ancient, stately, mysterious, powerful, yet the trees were not designed for easy assimilation into language. Their existence speaks for themselves, not in words, but rather in the soft-toned voice of patience and endurance. I found this sentence on the National Parks website describing coastal redwoods, and some bureaucrat wrote some of the best prose that I had read in a long time. It's a really beautiful sentence. And so much of the description contained here in this sentence is what I see is what it means to follow Jesus over the long haul. And today, what I want to describe to you in a simple matter of words is redwood faith. What does it mean to grow deep and tall in the love of Jesus growing so that we might know God more ourselves, but also so that the world might be blessed by our life in Jesus. And I find this beautiful depiction of what it means to follow God over the long haul tucked in a very obscure corner of Scripture. And I want to read that to you today as we unpack what it might mean to live a life of redwood faith. So we turn over to Genesis chapter 5. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. Mahalalel lived after the birth of Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. Jared lived after the birth of Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Now, if you're following along, you might be wondering, what on earth does this have to do with anything, especially with instruction or a vision for living a life before God? But bear with me. Verse 21 of Genesis 5. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after the birth of Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Verse 24 says, Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more, because God took him. Now, there's this important thing that we have to keep in mind anytime we open the scriptures. First of all, the scriptures are where God meets with us. He inhabits his word in a special and unique way to speak to us. But second, anytime there's a general pattern that's been established, and as we see in this genealogy, and for many of us, we've, we've set out, with the great vision to read the whole Bible, and we have gotten stuck in these ruts of these genealogies, these seemingly endless lists of names, and who was the father or mother of who, and how many years they lived, and why did they live so many years uh, more than we live now. There's so many things going on here. But we see the pattern in this genealogy established. Mahalalel lived these amount of years. He had these children. Jared lived these amount of years. He had these children. But when it comes to Enoch, the pattern shifts ever so slightly. And one of the things that we have to learn to do when we open the scriptures is to pay attention. The biblical writers, the writers of the library of scripture, did not have access to word processors or computers. They weren't using the backspace. They couldn't edit in the same way that we edit. 
And one of the keys to reading the scriptures well is to understand that there are no unnecessary details. The paper was a limited resource. So when they put in something that goes against the general pattern, it's a call for us. It's a signaling to pay attention. And when the biblical writer of Genesis comes to Enoch, he says that Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him. Now, I think this is an invitation to the compelling vision that God has for us to walk in the way of Jesus over the long haul of our lives, what Eugene Peterson calls the long obedience in the same direction. We have to see what is going on in the overall context of Genesis to see why this description of Enoch walking with God is so powerful. First, Genesis 1 and 2, God makes the world. He makes it with his word. Words create worlds. And he keeps saying of this world that his hands and his words have formed and made that it is good. And God blesses the world and he endues it with power, dynamism. This world is creating more worlds, trees making more trees, birds making more birds. And yes, those made in God's image, the woman and the man, called to be co-creators and partners in this work of God, are called very good. But if we know the story, this sense, this overall overarching shalom does not last more than a few chapters. In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent whispers his conspiracy. Did God really say that? And the man and the woman try to circumvent relatedness to God. They try to achieve the goodness and the blessing of God, the good and very good from God without a relationship to God. And there is no access to the goodness of God without relatedness to God. And God asked that question that echoes throughout the rest of Genesis 3 through 11, where are you? And the man and the woman are trying to cover their shame, to cover what they've done with figs and leaves. They try to hide away. And throughout the rest of Genesis 3 through 11, this is a theme. The question beckons, where are you? And in Genesis chapter 4, the answer is Cain is killing Abel, brother killing brother. In Genesis chapter 6, the world is so fundamentally oriented against the purposes of God that God is sorry that he has made the people. And he determines that he will bring a flood that will undo creation completely. But yet Noah finds favor in God's eyes. It's a story for another time. In Genesis chapter 11, it says that all the nations of the earth shared one language, and they commit to this secular humanist project to build a siege tower towards the heavens, assailing, taking the kingdom without the king, to have God without God's reign and rule and expectations. Brother killing brother, creation undone, a threat Secular humanism promising the kingdom without the king, it sounds much like our world. And amidst this overwhelming tide, this torrent of rebellion to God, this unraveling that sin has wrought upon the world, amidst all of this, there are two men who stem the tide, who stand like a rock in a river or like a tree planted 
against the streams, against that tide that would overwhelm them and live a different way. First, we've already described Noah, but second, we've seen in Genesis chapter 5, this very peculiar and obscure man named Enoch. And it says that when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after the birth of Methuselah 300 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him. The life of Enoch has inspired all sorts of speculation. What was it about the quality of his life that, that it almost seems that he lived and that he, he went away from the earth without dying? There are whole books written about Enoch, and Enoch will keep appearing in the story of salvation in very interesting ways. And today, we want to do some speculating, but we also want to cast a vision. What would it mean for us to live in the way of Jesus over the long haul so it could be said of us that we walked with God? That that was the defining characteristic of our lives. I want to ground this vision in a text for us today. The psalmist begins in Psalm chapter 1. He writes, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. So first, the psalmist is describing that which is antithetical to the way of walking with the Lord. He says, Blessed is the one who does not do these things. And notice the movement here, walking in step with the wicked, standing in the way that sinners take, sitting in the company of mockers, walking, standing, sitting. There's this movement when we live our lives in opposition to God's goodness and His fullness, when we miss the mark of His love for us, we start walking in a direction that we think will be better for us than the way that God has prescribed for us. And then we find that, you know, it's not so bad. It offers some sense of pleasure or return. And then we find ourselves sitting in a place that we never set out to be in. We find that we have made our bed. We have camped out in the far country. And this is the movement of of the oppositional way, what what St. Paul will later call the flesh, that we so easily divert to. And later on in the psalm, the psalmist will describe these people that live in this way as almost being without weight, that when the wind blows, a gentle breeze, because they're like chaff, can take them any which direction. They're blown away as nothing. And the psalmist wants to invite us into a better way of of living. Blessed is the one who does not walk in this way. We find within us our default operating system is to feed our own desires and pleasures, is to reject and resist God. Thomas Merton speaks of a time where he and his friends had built a fort in the woods near his home and his own brother John Paul wanted to play along. And he paints such a vivid picture, I think, of the way that God is pursuing us. You see, the vision for living a life over the long haul, of following the way of Jesus, of as Enoch did, walking with God, first starts with God refusing to give up on us of his steadfast love, his has said, his covenant. Look at what Thomas Merton 
paints in this vivid picture. He said that we were standing in a field about a hundred, or he says John Paul was standing in a field about a hundred yards away from the clump of sumacs where we have built our hut. It's this little perplexed five-year-old kid in short pants and a kind of a leather jacket standing quite still with his arms hanging down at his sides and gazing in our direction, afraid to come any nearer on account of the stones that we have thrown his way. He's as insulted as he is saddened, and his eyes full of indignation and sorrow. And yet he does not go away. We shouted him to get out of here, to beat it, to go home, and we wing a couple of more rocks in that direction, and he does not go away. We tell him to play in some other place. He does not move. And there he stands, not sobbing, not crying, but angry and unhappy and offended and tremendously sad. And yet, he is fascinated by what we are doing, nailing shingles all over our new hut. And his tremendous desire to be with us and to do what we are doing will not permit him to go away. The law written in his nature says that he must be with his elder brother and do what he is doing. And he cannot understand why this law of love is being so wildly and unjustly violated in his case. Many times it was like that. And in a sense, this terrible situation is the pattern and prototype of all sin. The deliberate and formal will to reject disinterested love for us for the purely arbitrary reason that we simply do not want it. We will to separate ourselves from that love. We reject it entirely and absolutely and will not acknowledge it simply because it does not please us to be loved. Merton describes the law written within his little brother's nature. And for us, though this picture is so common to us, brother not wanting their little brother to hang around, sister not wanting to be around their younger sibling, this is a common picture. But Merton says that this is a picture of God, so interested in what we are doing, so aching to draw near, and yet we resist Him. But the law within His nature says that He will not give up on us. And this is the life that Psalm 1 is inviting us into. To see that there is another way from the way that scoffers tread, another way from the place of standing where sitters are mocking and sitting. We are invited to God's way to welcome the love that knocks on the doors of our hearts. To turn to another way to see that the law written in the nature of God is the law of our true natures. And that we find our fullness and our identities as daughters and sons there. Verse 2 goes on in Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not do these things, but rather the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. The psalmist says, The way... That we stand against the overwhelming tide of our cultural norms, as in Genesis, brother betraying brother, 
creation unraveling, reverting to secular humanism as a way of saving ourselves. The way that we stand against that tide is to delight in the law of the Lord. The Hebrew word for delight here has the semantic rage, not only of joy, but also of interest and of need. This is about paying attention. You think about the things that you delight in in your life. Perhaps you have a hobby, a relationship, something that is so good to you and fills your soul. Odds are you probably tell other people about this, even if it's just a new show you found on whatever streaming service you have. When we delight in something, we talk about it, we move towards it, we pay attention to it, we give it our energy. And the word here for delighting in the law of the Lord is inviting exactly that, paying attention. The poet Mary Oliver says, attention is the beginning of devotion. And for us, one of the ways that we begin to receive the, the just never-ending love of God, the love that He will not give up on us, His covenant towards us, is by paying attention. Delighting in the law of the Lord makes us into trees planted by streams of water, attended by God. And we think about Enoch. We think about this this overwhelming torrent of cultural decay that was going on all around him, and it's visceral in Genesis. But it says of him that he walked with God. I can't help but assume that for him, so much of his life was defined by paying attention. And his life is so unremarkable. We're not told anything that he does. He he doesn't necessarily accomplish anything great for God, but he keeps appearing in the story of salvation because when we walk with God, our desire to leave a legacy, our desire to be well thought of is taken care of. Jesus will later say, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all the deepest desires of your heart will be added unto you. Enoch becomes this legend of sorts simply because he walked with God, because he paid attention, because he delighted in the Lord and in his word. The poet William Stafford says, so the world happens twice, once what we see it as, Second, it legends itself deep the way it is. Did you catch that? So the world happens twice. Once for Enoch, what we see it as. He walked with God. Second, it legends itself deep the way it is. Enoch in Luke chapter 3 is listed in the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The story of Jesus the one who comes in the line of David, the one who comes to free us from our sins, to bring the kingdom of heaven near, is not told without referencing Enoch. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews references Enoch as one who exhibited such remarkable faith that it deserves to be remembered throughout all of recorded salvation history. So the world happens twice. The life of Enoch, because he simply walked with God, has legended itself, and I love that verb, it legends itself. It becomes something more. You see, so often our lives feel so small and insignificant that we buy into the lie that they are insignificant. We we absolve ourselves of the level of responsibility that God has given us. 
We think that our decisions have small significance, but what we see in the life of Enoch is that we're not told anything he does, but because he lives his life before God, because he lives his life delighting in God, that his life takes on a quality and a character that far extends and and breaks the bounds of his own life. Enoch is giving us a vision of redwood faith of a faith that grows deep, roots deep into the ground, pressing into the soil of God's love, and a a life that grows tall, standing through the course of history, reaching ever further towards the Son of God's great love for us. You see, when we live our lives in the climate of God's presence, our lives grow beautifully and mysteriously, and they bless the world. And we often think of our lives in terms of our own individual lives. But the beauty that we see throughout the scriptures is that God's not just in the business of planting trees. God's in the business of planting forests. Redwood seeds are small. They're smaller than tomato seeds. But these small seeds through the course of generations, grow glacially into trees that span the horizon, that stand over 360 feet tall, that are a monument, as that lovely bureaucrat wrote on the National Park's website, to patience and endurance. God is inviting us to have a vision a vision for the long haul, a vision for what God, who has resurrected the reigning Lord of all things, can do when we faithfully sow the individual moments of our lives into His great love. Jesus will say it this way in John chapter 15. He says, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love one another. In the hidden life of trees, the author describes why European redwoods rarely grow to over 160 feet tall, while coastal redwoods in the United States easily grow to double that size. He says that these trees experience a lot of success early on. They don't have to compete for light with other trees. Most of their growth happens above the surface, but their roots suffer. Because they're often planted in urban settings, they can't go deep or wide enough. And he writes, Their location gives a clue as to why this might be the case. These redwoods in European contexts were often planted in city parks by princes and politicians as exotic trophies. What is missing here, above all, is the forest, or more specifically, relatives. At 150 years old, they are, when you consider a potential lifespan of many thousands of years, indeed only children, growing up here in Europe far from their home and without their parents. 
No uncles, no aunts, no cheerful nursery school, no. They have lived all their lives out on a lonely limb, and if that weren't enough, in most cases the soil is a complete disaster. Whereas the old-growth forest offers soft, crumbly, humus-rich, and constantly moist soil for their delicate roots, European parks offer hard surfaces that have been depleted of nutrients and compacted after years of urbanization. And we take these two visions together, the vision of Jesus where he says, I am the vine and you are the branches, love one another. And the vision of the European trees whose growth is stunted. What we see is that the only way for us to grow is to be planted first in the soil of God's word, of his love for us, of Jesus and his words to us, his commands to us, which he says he gives us his commands, not so that he can treat us like servants, but so that we would be called his children, his friends. To receive those words, but also to live out of the abundance of those words, to love one another. We have to be a part of a larger ecosystem, a forest of people growing up into the fullness of what God has made us to be. A church is a forest serving and loving one another out of the gifts God has given us. And Jesus commands us in one of his most poignant and stirring speeches about what it means to be his people. He says, love one another. This is my command. The soil that we are planted in is Jesus and his words and the forest for us to grow into the fullness of who we were called to be, to be those coastal redwoods soaring high above the heavens, is to love one another, to delight in the law of the Lord, to be a, a, like a tree planted by streams of water, is to be a part of a forest where we are giving of ourselves, emptying ourselves of privilege, of status, of possession. Emptying ourselves of what we think we need in order to serve one another. Jesus didn't just say to do this. And this is the most beautiful and compelling thing about Jesus. Jesus lived his life to do this. He lived a life of beauty and wholeness before God. And he showed that when one person devotes themselves singularly to God and to doing his will, they bring healing and shalom back to the world. This is our call to live like Jesus. Jesus died in this way. He dies as a seed. As he says that a seed, unless it falls to the ground, cannot fulfill the purpose for which a seed was made. But when it falls to the ground, it grows and it brings life. Jesus was executed on a Roman cross conspired with the religious leaders of his time. It seemed that Jesus was a failure, but Jesus was not a failure because the cross was not the end of his story. Jesus was a seed. And though Jesus lived in obscurity and he died in relative obscurity because his life was lived like Enoch and even in greater extent than Enoch before God, because he walked with God, his life sown to the love of God brought life and healing to the world. Jesus took upon the curse that was so readily ours because we so readily live in opposition to God. We walk in the way that sinners tread. We sit in the seat of scoffers and mockers because that is our default operating system. But Jesus became a curse for us. 
And Deuteronomy says that cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. And so it seemed that Jesus dying this ignominious death on a cross was the end of his story. And yet Jesus going to that cross, that tree outside of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, died as a seed. The seed that fell, that was buried in the ground on that Good Friday became a tree taller than any redwood. The tree of Calvary stands over all of history, inviting, welcoming one and all to come receive the love of the Father, to receive the call of His fullness and life, to be planted like a tree by streams of water in the larger ecosystem of God's grace and His purposes and mission in the world. Jesus is risen, revealing Himself patiently through the faithfulness and witness of his church. And he calls us again to be partners with him in sowing seeds, in giving of our lives just as he did. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross and follow me, must be like him, living their life as a seed poured out, falling to the ground so that the world might be blessed. But when we do that, what we find is that like Jesus, death cannot keep its hold on him and it cannot keep its hold on us. That through his great love for us, we have overcome the world. And as we give, as we live our lives on mission, as we become the forest as ecclesia that God has planted us to be, that we find the end of all of our doing, of all of our striving is Jesus. All of our living for Him, of all of our walking before Him, we get Him. We get Jesus, His fullness, His life everlasting. The tree that spans the horizons of eternity. We are grafted in to that everlasting tree, the tree of everlasting life. Enoch lived his life walking with God. So rather unremarkable was his life, so seemingly small. And yet because his life was defined by his walk with God, it is a legacy that expands throughout eternity. Enoch is a vision of living our lives simply before God, of inviting him into the moments of our lives. You just never know what a life lived before God will accomplish. C.S. Lewis, in his great divorce, describes, and it's an allegory of heaven and hell, and he sees this woman. The narrator sees this woman who is walking with this great parade around her, this, this triumphal procession. And the narrator asks his guide, he says, who is that woman? She must have been, she must have done great things during her life. And the guide says, no, that woman lived her life in obscurity. She was but a small speck in the story of the world, but in the story of salvation, she was great and mighty because she lived her life before God. And I think about my own life. I think about the seeds that I have received the fruit of. I think about my grandfather. In the 1950s, he was at a Billy Graham rally in London. And the message of Jesus touched his life. It changed him on that day. He responded to God's call to receive his identity as a son of God. He received Jesus' salvation and it changed everything. Eventually, their life, the following Jesus, would take them to the United States and he would work for various ministries. And in so many ways, his life was 
unremarkable. He never did these amazing things for God that will be told in the history books, but he lived faithfully. Evening prayers, morning prayers, wanting to know what Jesus' will for his life was and trying his best to obey it. And for, him, for me, his life was a model and paragon of faithfulness. A model of what it means to follow Jesus. A model of what it means to say yes to Jesus. Of what it means to do some things that may seem contrary to what might be the wise or the the prudent decision in a given moment, but to follow Jesus with everything that we have. And I know that our church, for whatever impact it will have in Princeton, is a product of his faithfulness, of the vision that I saw in his life, a long obedience lived in the same direction. And I don't know about you, but that's the vision I want to hold for my life. The vision that no matter how long, no matter how many years I'm given, that my life would be defined like Enoch's, walking with God. And that my life would be defined like Jesus's being known for stealing away through the long hours of the night to spend time with the Father, where he could say, I tried it. I do nothing other than what I see my Father in heaven doing. I want to be like Jesus, our Master. I want to apprentice myself to that life. And it starts with paying attention, with delighting ourselves in the law of the Lord and His Word. And I want to encourage you, Ecclesia, just as we wrap up today, Perhaps you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. But if you're honest, you've been living somewhat aimlessly. You don't have this vision of a redwood, of a tree that grows tall and stately and mysterious and beautiful. God is inviting you to this kind of life. He said, Paul will write that we are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. This is the extravagance that God has invited us into. And he does it through patience and through small steps. And so I want to invite you, what would it mean for you to start following Jesus in the smallness of your everyday life? We think we tend to think of change as this like incredible thing that we have to, to make happen all at once. But God, through His grace and patience, is wanting to come near to our lives, to change us, yes, to sanctify and transform us. Amen. But He does it through the seemingly subtle means of our everyday lives. So perhaps you just need a vision of what it looks like to grow into something that you could never imagine at this point in your life. I want you to hold that vision of a redwood, of the tree of Calvary that stands over all of eternity. The second image, for those of you who may be listening to my voice and you, you're just, if you'd be honest, You've planted yourself in your own soil. You've walked in the ways that sinners tread. You've sat in the seats of sinners and mockers. And you've said, I don't know how I got here. You've been trying to, to live and plant your roots in soil that simply will not produce. It will only produce thorns and thistles, as the curse in Genesis 3 pronounces. God is in the business of grafting us in. Perhaps today he's saying, stop trying to grow a harvest in a a, a dry and barren land, but rather receive the gift of his, His willingness to never relent and never give up on you, 
received the gift of his call to be planted like a tree by streams of water, to walk with him, to receive the free gift of his salvation that was planted on the seed of Calvary and has risen in, in the resurrected Lord and Jesus, our Savior and King and Messiah. This vision of a redwood is for you and God has invited you to receive it. I pray that you will. Grace and peace to you.